What do you think of this dress? That's cute. Can I order it? Hello? Can you please text me back? I have dad's credit card with me. I need to order it right now because I have practice and they only have one more in my size. Honey, I'm sorry. I I'm working. Yes, you can order it. Ugh, it's not working. I tried on my phone and my computer. Wait, I figured it out. You have to be 18 to order, so I just put in your birthday and it worked. What time will you be home tonight? Can we order Uber Eats? I'm craving Vietnamese. Welcome to Back of Napkin, the podcast created in honor of that great tradition of big ideas doodled on little pieces of paper, where we here at Fleischman Hillard are passing a napkin to top marketing leaders who will sketch out what's on their minds about the topics that are on ours. What you just heard was a reenactment of text exchanges between me and my teen daughter. It's also a legit example of what we marketers like to call the pester power of Gen Z. Not to mention, <laughs> it's clear proof that I caved. As a small consolation, I'm comforted that I'm not alone in my weakness. A YouGov omnibus parent survey found that 42% of parents admit to having, quote, buckled under the pressure of their child's attempt to get them to buy a particular product. It got me thinking, considering we moms control 85% of household purchases and have a spending power of $2.4 trillion, according to Forbes, what influence do our kids have on our consumer spending? Is the dynamic different than previous generations? To dig into the topic, I've asked Fleischman Hillard's Liz Hawks, expert on marketing to moms, and Jenny Fuller, our resident Gen Z savant, to weigh in. Welcome, and thank you guys for joining today. Hi, Candy. Thanks for having us. Hi, Candy. Hi. Great. Well, Liz and Jenny, you both have spent a great deal of time working with brands on how to reach both moms and Gen Z. But today, it seems it's not only about controlling the pocketbook, but it's lots of other things, too, like trying to control the velocity of money spending, the instant decision-making. And so as a fellow mom, Liz, how do you make sense of this dynamic? Yeah, so there's a lot going on when we when we think about marketing to moms today. And you know, I think that we can look at it in a couple of different ways. One being, you know, there are certain universal truths when it comes to mom's mindset that are not kind of demographic specific. Um, but that really um, are some of the reasons why we market to moms separately than we market to women. So like, for example, um, you know, no matter what demographic you are as a mom, if you have, um, you know, a two-year-old and let's say you're a millennial mom, you might resonate with the same type of marketing that, um, you know, a boomer mom who happens to have a two-year-old in the household as well would resonate with. So that's where we kind of look at marketing to mom based on marketing to the motherhood stage as opposed to the demographic age. But, you know, because um, demographics can play a role, you know, we also can slice and dice marketing to moms by demographics. And, I, and in fact, that's one of the most common questions that I think I, I get today um, in terms of marketing to moms is there's a huge fascination, particularly with millennial moms. Um, and millennial moms are, you know, the fastest growing, you know, type of mom out there. There are like 17 million new millennials becoming moms every year right now. Um, and so people tend to think about 
how, you know, the way that millennials were raised as kids can influence the way that they are now parenting and the way that we might want to communicate with them as moms, um, which is, of course, very different than and unique than the way that you might think about communicating with a Gen X woman who is coming from more of that latchkey kid upbringing and more of the independent thinking, maybe more likely to say no even to a child um, in terms of that pester relationship um, than a millennial mom is who is more used to sort of the community parenting, um, more used to collaborative consensus building. Um, and so I think that there are just a, there's a lot to unpack when we think about, you know, how we might market to a boomer mom, a Gen X mom, and a millennial mom separately, but then also thinking about overlaying marketing to those women based on their motherhood stage as well. Let me just say that these kids are ruthless negotiators, and I don't think it matters if you're a Gen Z or a boomer mom. The kids definitely have this pester power, you know, from promising to make better grades to taking on more chores, or even in my daughter's case, like, she just simply hits me when I'm most vulnerable from mom guilt, which is at work, of course. So, you know, she holds no punches and these kids don't hold any punches. So, Jenny, as a passionate Gen Z marketer, I'm curious if you can tell me how kids today really differ from when we were kids and the parenting approach of our parents. Absolutely. Um, the parenting approaches really vary vastly between the upbringing of Gen Z and millennials as a whole. Um Baby boomers really raised millennials uh, as far as the greatest group of them, and they raised them to believe in the American dream and encouraged them to chase their passions. And baby boomers, the American dream was alive and well, so they didn't teach their kids as much about competition. Instead, they taught them to be team players. If everybody works hard, everybody can win. And the boomers were the first generation to really be friends with their kids, which is a new dynamic that we've seen as we've seen sometimes the boomers struggling to maybe properly send their kids off to manage the world on their own. They tried to set up millennial kids with everything they needed to succeed. And part of that, we've seen millennials living at home longer and longer sometimes, like allowing them to stay home into their late 20s just to support them the best they can. And so I think um, Gen X parents kind of saw the millennials struggle a little bit in some areas and started to um, change their parenting style. So they watched millennials fail and the economy started to go down. And so they chose to raise their Gen Z kids often a little bit more practically um, and taught them to find what they're good at and try and pursue that um, rather than just tracing any sort of dream. And they've taught their children to survive and adapt um, as a result, many Gen Zers are less likely to see higher education as the ultimate goal. Enrollment in U.S. universities has started to go down a little bit if people think really practically about how much debt they want to take on um, and if they are the right person to go to college. So they're a little bit more practical as they view the world in that way. Um, and Gen Xers also taught Gen Z kids to be a little bit more competitive than millennials. I think recently we've seen a little bit of the ugly side of that with the college entry scandal um, in terms of how how big that competition and that and that passion to to compete is. Okay, well let's talk purchasing power. So in my household it it's totally holds true. As a mom, I make the decisions on household purchases, like what sort of you know, dishwashing detergent that we're going to buy or what cereals we're going to eat. But there's a lot of other purchases that kids are influencing these days, like restaurants, apparel, entertainment. Um, in fact, the National Retail Federation recently conducted a poll that found 67% of parents 
get their child's input before making a purchase. And 59% won't buy an item which their child doesn't approve. Um, I know that wasn't the case when I was a kid, but I can certainly see it happening with myself as a parent. So Liz, can you tell me about the pester power and how it correlates to mom's purchasing decisions? Absolutely. So in thinking about pester power, so this is actually something that I think was first coined back in 1979. Um, And I think that, you know, you can kind of default to thinking about it in terms of the nag factor. Um, But when you dive down into it a little bit more deeply from a marketing perspective, there are really kind of two forms of pestering that moms and kids um, kind of dance through when kids are trying to convince mom to to purchase something. And so one form is more on kind of the, I'm going to just wear you down aspect and I'm going to sort of whine about it and repetitively ask you for it until eventually you'll just give in because you're basically just tired of hearing me as your kid um, continue to, to try to get this thing. So there's kind of that wearing down of mom. But then on the other side of of pester power, it's pestering that taps into sort of the guilt factor that, um, you know, many parents have, which is I feel guilty that I'm not spending enough time with you or I feel guilty that maybe we're not as connected as I would like us to be. So in terms of this type of pester power, the kid is really tapping into the parental guilt that mom has and using that to get her to agree to the purchase. So it's important to kind of identify and understand those two types of pester power when you think about um, the impact that it has on getting moms to purchase. The other thing is in terms of the different um, sectors or different types of products that um, a child might use pester power to try to get mom to, to make that purchase, there is um, a process in which mom might seek out, you know, the, the child's input towards more, maybe more the beginning stage of making that purchase decision, the middle or the end. And that would be based on the specific sector or category that the, that the item is within. So it's important to kind of look into the data when you're thinking about how you can maybe pull that trigger to help use it in terms of um, the marketing funnel with mom. The other thing is that you know, there are, in, in some aspects, it's not necessarily the child who is um, kind of holding all of the purse strings when it comes to pestering, but, you know, mom is actually seeking out the opinion of the family um, and the kids in making the decision. So thinking about things like where are we going to go on vacation or where are we going to eat um, or even, you know, what's going to go on the grocery list for this week. Um, There are certain aspects that, and especially thinking about what we were just talking about with, you know, millennial moms and consensus consensus building um, and kind of getting everybody um, in on the decision. So this is a behavior that we're seeing, especially millennial moms wanting to take with their kids to involve them in the decision making on behalf of the family. So there's really kind of a, even though mom is still going to make the ultimate decision and she still holds the purse strings and as you mentioned, makes 85% of the household purchase decisions, she's going to seek out input from the family in certain categories um, and that it's not necessarily just the the large scale, you know, let's are we going to go to Disney World or not for a vacation? 
but it's even like the, where are we going to eat tonight for dinner? Um, she's just not making those decisions in a vacuum, even though she's ultimately the purchaser. Yeah. It's funny how much has changed. I remember my parents telling me you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Um, that just really doesn't seem to even be part of our family dynamic anymore. It's definitely everybody having an opinion and, um, you know, kind of, polling everyone and making sure that um, we'll all, you know, we're all in it together. So it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see how much uh, it has changed. And again, I think your, your comments about being friends with your children, um, you know, definitely is a contributor to that. So I'm curious, so we've talked about moms um, a bit. Um, where do dads fit in in this equation? Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, I think that a lot of people tend to default to, especially thinking about millennial parents today, that dads are more involved and more hands-on with the kids than maybe their fathers were. And so we default to thinking that that correlates to, you know, making decisions. So, okay, my husband, um, he changed diapers and his father probably never changed a diaper, but my husband does not care what brand of diapers we put on our kids, you know? It's like he wants to be involved, but he that doesn't mean that he's going to make the grocery list or that he's going to care about, um, you know, what brand of, you know, paper towels we, we get. And so I think that it's important to know that, you know, even though today's dads are not their father's father's. That doesn't mean that they are taking on any of that 85% of household purchase decisions and taking that away from mom. Um, and I think that that's kind of a, a little bit of a shiny penny, too, that that marketers tend to fall into. So, for example, I was at um, the annual Blog Her conference a couple of years ago and sat in on a panel discussion about the future of mom influencer relations and there was a dad influencer on the panel. And I'm like, of course, you've got to have, you know, the token dad as part of this conversation about where moms are going. Um, and it's just funny to me. I mean, I, I think that we also see kind of a lot of campaigns um, in the mom influencer space where there's kind of that token dad there. And it just feels like such a mess. I heard when Janet Fletcher was still at... Um, PNG, I heard her talk about the Thank You Mom campaign and when she first launched that campaign for the enterprise um, at the 2012 Olympics and how much um, you know negative feedback they received from dads on Twitter um, because they're kind of like, oh, you know, great. Well, what about us? You know, we are doing the dishes and the laundry and getting the kids ready and out to their practices just like moms are. And she's like, absolutely. And we have nothing against dads. Just because we're focusing this campaign on thank you, mom, doesn't mean that we, you know, see dads any less. It's just that we know that mom is the one purchasing our products. And the sales figures um, related to that campaign also proved out, you know, that that key behavior that moms still have. And I also, I love the example. I also heard um, a brand marketer with Hot Wheels talk at a conference um, and he was talking all about how Hot Wheels had started to see some sales declines in the brand and traditionally they'd always been or they had been um, marketing to dads and trying to use nostalgia and you know dads wanting to play Hot Wheels with their sons as a means to get dad to purchase Hot Wheels and then you know started to see the sales were slumping 
And they realized that even though dad grew up with the same toys and, um, you know, they were hoping that dad would play Hot Wheels with their sons, it was mom who was making the purchases. And so they had to change their approach from using, you know, um, crash test dummy, you know, videos and um, some of those big kind of explosive, you know, real life Hot Wheels and start to market to mom more so as wanting to facilitate the play for her kids. And they started to see that turnaround. So I think these are just all great examples of reasons why, you know, even though today's dad is, and thank God for this, a more hands-on and involved person in terms of the household and with the kids, that doesn't correlate to dad having an opinion on making you know, specific types of purchases. And the other aspect is that moms are a great marketing target, but they're also a great marketing channel because of the ways that moms communicate with each other. And dads just don't inherently communicate that way with other dads. So we can get moms um, to lend their peer influence to other moms to get them interested in, you know, our clients' products and services. Um, We can't do that with dads in the same way. So that's another reason why um, we want to keep mom more squarely in focus. That's interesting. I do wonder with the adoption of apps like Instacart, if dads will be trained to know how to reorder those brands after mom sets up the grocery list. But that's another conversation altogether. So another thing that I noticed is that kids these days don't really think twice about using iPay or making in-app purchases. So Jenny, can you talk about the significant buying power Gen Z has as a generation in their own right? Yes. Um, the most recent numbers I've seen places Gen Z's buying power around $150 billion. This is a combination of money that they're given for a birthday Maybe they earn it babysitting or some are recent college graduates at a full-time job um, or the money that they influence of their parents. And we've touched a little bit on some of the categories that they influence, like the obvious ones of clothing and food. But uh, the National Retail Federation shows teens influence family spending on things that even include furniture and household goods, ways that I think we've never seen generations before have that kind of influence. And this pester power has, I think, increased dramatically because of all the products and information kids and teens are exposed to on social and other forms of digital media. They can see a cool gadget on a YouTube video and then search for it online, place it in a cart, and then carry, you know, the iPad over to mom and ask her to buy it. I mean, the power to be able to go from seeing something to purchase it instantly um, has just evolved uh, rapidly. My family, uh, including my nine nieces and nephews who are all Gen Zers, and I have a couple Gen Alphas at home, that um, they've taken to creating all their birthday and Christmas wish lists on Amazon. And they can send me a quick text message and show me all the things that they're hoping that I might consider buying them for their birthday and Christmas. And I certainly do it because it's easy. I can I don't even have to go to the store and it can be there in a couple of days. So the pester power is definitely at a, a whole new level. I agree. My son um, is very into robotics and he will put together a crazy shopping cart of all these different 
components and parts and brings it over and basically says, mom, will you buy this for me? Cause I won't play video games. I'll, I'll, I'll build a robot instead. So yes, I, I totally see that Amazon has been um, a godsend for us and, and um, obviously a gateway for him to get me to purchase stuff for him. About this time in the episode, I like to take a right turn and shift the point of view from audiences to brands. Based on your experiences, Liz, what tips do you have for brands that want to target these audiences? You know, when marketing to moms, what do brands need to keep in mind and what landmines should they avoid? I think first and foremost, we need to think about breaking through to moms um, who are not dedicating their full attention to any one medium. Um, and so it's really important to think about that surround sound approach um, and and pulling multiple levers of you know, distribution channels, especially being very social focused, content focused, et cetera. But not forgetting that mom is a, you know, she's still a second screen media consumer. Um, and, and we need to think about how we can also reach her from that duality of social and traditional media. Um, but that's also very sort of um, channel focused. So backing it up from there, um, it's really all about authenticity for moms. Um, with the pressures that, you know, she has to be perfect. I mean, we talked about the the college ad- admission scam. Uh, you know, you can't look at the news media today when it comes to parenting and not see something about snowplow parenting or lawnmower parenting as the new trend. Um, and so, you know, I think that a lot of that behavior of parenting style really stems from the pressure to be perfect, which is perpetuated by what she sees by her peers and by influencers and social media um, and trying to curate this this life, this parenthood life of perfection. And so that puts a lot of strain on her. And when in marketing, we can show her that we understand that pressure and we can maybe laugh at it or we can demonstrate our understanding of that through just authenticity type content and messaging. I think that that then is where we see brands win her over um, when they when they are able to demonstrate that well. And that, you know, understanding that for mom, comparison is the thief of joy. Um, and so how can brands help kind of give her those little moments of joy? Um, how can they, through either content or maybe even the, the payoff of their product or service, help offer that back to her a little bit. So you mentioned snowplow and lawnmower parenting. For those of us that don't understand what those terms are, you want to shed a little light on those? Yeah. So essentially, it's two ways of saying the same thing. But behavior is that I am going to try to get out in front of my child and eliminate any um, anything that's uncomfortable or any barriers that might stand in their way um, or anything that might make their lives too um, challenging for them to just kind of get through. So I might be the snowplow that smooths out, um, you know, the snow that might, that they might have to trudge through, um, or I might be the lawnmower that kind of, you know, clears out all the weeds and clears out all of the, um, brush that they might have to kind of navigate and get through as, you know, living a life. Um, and so the idea is just making things as easy on my child as possible um, and that's what we're seeing as, as a behavior that tends to um, 
you know, make life too easy for kids who then when they when they become adults don't know how to na- navigate the realities of their lives. And it's so funny because when you were talking about boomers earlier, Jenny, I was thinking about um, a study that I once read and it was really awesome, like primary research in terms of like interview feedback from boomer moms. And they were talking to these moms about why they continue to pay for things like their adult child cell phone bills and car insurance and things of that nature when they're in when they're like age 30. So adult kids still leaning on mom and dad for some kind of basic bills. And the question was posed to these boomer moms, you know, why are you doing this? And the mom's response was, you know, because I love him. And it's just so funny to me. Um, and I mean, it's funny to me because it, I think, blends that thing. We were talking about guilt earlier, you know, and the pester power and playing into mom's guilt in order to get her to buy something. To me, I think that sometimes moms can confuse guilt and love. And I think that those boomer moms were doing that, you know, they're continuing to pay for these things for their adult kids who have the means to do so because they want to maintain that connection. They want to feel like they're still doing something to care for these kids um, who, you know, maybe they don't have a lot of time for or um, so they're kind of, I don't know, I just think they're kind of confusing guilt and love. And there's some kind of insight in that, I think, with parenting that then has um, an impact on purchasing. You need to totally psychoanalyze me then. <laughs> I, I'm totally feeling the guilt, but um, it's it's likely love. You're you're probably right. Um, so along the same lines, Jenny, you know, with Gen Z ranging from elementary school to to recent college graduates in the working world, how should marketers tailor their messaging and approach for this audience? Well, I think marketers need to remember that their campaign can be edgy. Um, but they need to remember that Gen Zers, some of which are still just kids. And so that's a reason why you can't just plug and play your millennial marketing strategy straight in for Gen Z. Um, Some are even under the age of 13, which means marketing to them requires COPA compliance. And COPA is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which is enforced by the FTC. And there are some rules there in terms of what needs to be in your privacy policy if you're trying to target someone 13 or under. Um, as well as the fact that you have to get parental consent before collecting information from kids under 13, which goes as far as meaning you can't collect cookies off a website if you're targeting it at that age. Uh, Another thing to remember is you have to be 13 to join uh, most social networks in the U.S. And while we know there are some kids under that age on there that have maybe faked their birthdays, as marketers, we should not be targeting kids actively under the age of 13 on platforms that they um, are not allowed to join. In the EU, that um, age is even higher. It's at 16 since they passed the GDPR last year. But as far as networks go, my top recommendation for reaching Gen Z is definitely YouTube. It's their number one platform for this age. And because some Gen Zers aren't old enough to be on Instagram or Snapchat, they've been able to get on YouTube for a long time, whether that's um, on traditional YouTube or they're accessing it through the YouTube Kids app app. They've been um, on that platform for a long time, and they seem to be staying there. Um, And finally, as uh, smart marketers, I wouldn't put all um, my eggs in one basket for reaching Gen Z. And so while you may want to try some things on tried and true channels, such as YouTube and Instagram, 
um, I think looking and experimenting a little bit with some things that are emerging or a little bit different, whether that's experimenting with TikTok or the rise of podcasts. I'm sure there's sponsorship opportunities. Kids are really getting into podcasts um, on some that align really well with your target audience. Yeah, I would even add um, the e-gamers and kind of that that entire universe. My um, tween son and his friends spend a large majority of their time um, in that world and um, definitely um, are exposed to brands kind of every day um, that they're on there, both brands and influencers as well. So I, I guess it begs the question, who is doing this well, right? So what brands have found their sweet spots with moms and kids, tweens and teens? Jenny, do you want to answer that first? Sure. Um, Target's a brand that comes to mind immediately because they've tapped into Gen Z for a while now. They partnered with kids when they first launched uh, their art class clothing line several years ago, and they identified about 10 different influencers being kids um, ranging from 7 to 14 that had some sort of standout achievements and were getting known in the world of dance or in writing and skateboarding, all sorts of areas, and really worked with them to actually create the line. So they brought them in at the beginning, and they also became then kind of the spokespeople and models for the line, and they already had their circle of influence. And that took off so far that they really started to stretch the the age bracket of that particular line down and up across um, even further demographics. And they continue to bring in kind of a different group every year to be that face. Um, my kids, while they're not old enough to be shopping online yet, they do um, watch plenty of YouTube. And <laughs> their favorite is... Ryan's Toy Reviews, and if anyone knows much about YouTube influencers, he is one of the top earners every year. And they're on the YouTube Kids app, so there are not actually um, spons- there's not sponsored content on there. But Ryan Target partnered with Ryan and have some exclusive Ryan's Toy Review toys, so he can talk about those because those are his. And so they're asking me to take them to Target all the time um, at four and six years old. For a little bit older, I think of Converse. It's really a brand that has withstood this test of time in terms of keeping its kind of cool uh, factor with teenagers. They had a great Made by You campaign that really celebrated their iconic Chuck Taylors and the fact that people have, for generations, made Chucks their artistic canvases. And they they uh, recently kind of made that into a livable um, museum, if you will, where you could go across different cities and experience the different Chuck Taylors that were created by famous people, by regular people. It had a very interactive element to it that you could come in and, and customize your own. Um, so I really like what they've done as far as um, stay, staying up to speed with the changing times and still reaching Gen Z. Liz, any faves? Definitely have a few faves of late, um, and I think that the brands that I'm that I'm kind of gravitating towards with marketing to moms are doing it well in terms of the use of emotion in content marketing and being very video centric with that content. And when I say the use of emotion, I mean all types of emotion, whether that's humor, pulling on heartstrings, um, you know, use of kind of an empowerment message. So lots of different ways to break through when you think about using content first um, with emotion and, and, and really playing up that authenticity factor as well. So for example, um, in the humor space, I think that Chatbooks um, does a really great job of using video content um, 
and and in the video telling a story of how they understand how mom's lives are super hectic in a really funny and engaging way it makes you want to pause in your social feed and watch the full video and maybe even you know share it with your fellow moms who understand um, and Chatbooks, of course, is an app that um, you can use to easily um, print off photo books um, right from your photo stream on your phone. So they do a great job with that. Also in the humor um, in the humor realm, Kraft Mac and Cheese did a really funny campaign for Mother's Day a couple of years ago that really stuck with me because it was also playing on humor um, and on mom's... Um, you know, ha- you have to get dinner done, um, and it's not always easy, uh, but Kraft Mac and Cheese, of course, is a great solution to that, but they told this story with video content again around um, mom using funny curse words, um, and they would replace the curse words with other words um, in the course of the video, and it was just, it was just super funny and relatable. Um, in terms of pulling on heartstrings, um, there was a flower brand that did a really great series of um, storytelling with real moms um, last Mother's Day, and they identified four moms and went to their homes, spent a couple of days with these families and captured a ton of really great B-roll. Um, and they just, the whole, the whole idea was that um, love is what makes a mom. And so each story was extremely unique. Um, as a package, the series spoke to modern parenting today and how there's not, you know, one way to do it and there's not one look um, of, you know, a modern mom today um, or modern kids today. Um, and so it was just really great and um, and just really heartfelt in the way that they produced the pieces. Um, and then thinking about kind of that empowerment message, Goldie Blocks is a toy brand that comes to mind. And again, They are very video-centric. They really focus their social video content around the holiday season. And obviously their objective is to break through with moms, even if their daughters don't know what Goldie Blocks are. And even, I mean, watching the videos, they are so um, resonant that I even thought, okay, I might want to get this for my five-year-old daughter for Christmas and maybe she'll get interested in Goldie Blocks, even though she has no idea what this brand is yet. Um, so kind of the reverse pester power in that aspect. Um, but again, I mean, kind of, I think that the common, the commonality between all of these great examples is using emotion, showing authenticity and relevance to moms, understanding their lives, being video first, um, and making that video, um, you know, play and social where they know moms are aggregating. I loved all those examples. Before we wrap today, though, I'd like to chat a little bit about what's next for these audiences. So first, what can we expect in the world of marketing to mom? Well, I think that what's old is what's new. Um, There, you know, moms are and have always been most motivated by word of mouth from pure moms. And so, you know, that's why we saw moms you know, lead the blogosphere in the mid 2000s. Um, and that's why we see that the the social influencer today continues to be, um, you know, a millennial mom is the most common type of influencer that we're working with on Instagram, for example. Um, they're not necessarily talking about just mom topics um, because we know that moms don't want to lose sight of who they were, you know, before kids. 
Um, but I think that we'll continue to see word of mouth and that peer trust factor continue to lead the way with marketing to moms going forward. Um, maybe the difference will be what is the platform, what's the format for that, but word of mouth um, and the peer mom will always be the most important aspect for marketing to moms. Okay. And what about marketing to Gen Zers and even the Gen Alphas that you have at home, Jenny, as we look to the future? Sure. Well, not surprisingly, I think Gen Z and beyond are going to be harder to reach than previous generations via those traditional advertising channels um, like network TV or print ads that we know are uh, rapidly going by the wayside. I think brands to really tap into Gen Z um, can leverage the fact that their personal brand is something that's very important to them. And so how can they co-create and collaborate with Gen Z? I think about Nike or back to Converse that let you like get online and customize your own shoe design um, and then click to buy. Gen Z wants to be part of the process. So I think brands that can continue to evolve and, and create customization and collaboration options are going to establish that loyalty with this generation and grow with them. I also think Gen Z will to continue to push brands to rethink their offline footprint. We know um, storefronts are struggling. So traditional retailers, uh, to pique their interest, are going to have to really up their, you know, in real life experience to draw Gen Z away from their screens that they're so loyal to, or at least create a place where they want to get out and capture that snappable and insta-worthy moment, um, some sort of experience that they can't um, have online. What can you bring out at a festival or attraction or a storefront? Um, I think brands will continue to experiment in that area. You guys, both as a mom and a marketer, it's really been a delight to talk to you about consumer moms, kids, teens, and gosh, how we should approach them as marketing experts. It's definitely a topic that I will personally continue to live in real time. And you know, while conventional wisdom has taught us that there's a single person in the household that keeps a tight fist on those dollars, I'm, I'm just not sure it's only mom anymore, or maybe that's just me. But until next time, I'm Candace Peterson, Global Managing Director of Brand and Consumer Marketing at Fleischman Hillard. Thanks for joining me for this Pester Power episode of Back of the Napkin. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links mentioned. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Fleischman Hillard, a global public relations and marketing agency serving the world's top brands. For more information about this podcast and to listen to previous episodes, visit FleischmannHillard.com forward slash brand marketing.